Chapter twenty seven of the Magnificent Ambersons. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Magnificent Ambersons by Booth Tarkington. Chapter twenty seven. Having finished some errands downtown, the next afternoon, George Amberson Minifer was walking up National Avenue on his homeward way when he saw in the distance, coming toward him, on the same side of the street, the figure of a young lady. A figure just under the middle height comely indeed, and to be mistaken for none other in the world, even at two hundred yards. To his sharp discomfiture his heart immediately forced upon him the consciousness of his acceleration. A sudden warmth about his neck made him aware that he had turned red, and then, departing, left him pale. For a panicky moment he thought of facing about in actual flight. He had little doubt that Lucy would meet him with no token of recognition and all at once this probability struck him as unendurable. And if she did not speak, was it the proper part of chivalry to lift his hat and take the cut bareheaded? Or should the finer gentleman acquiesce in the lady's desire for no further acquaintance, and pass her with stony mane and eyes constrained forward? George was a young man badly flustered. But the girl approaching him was unaware of his trepidation, being perhaps somewhat preoccupied with her own. She saw only that he was pale, and that his eyes were darkly circled. But here he was advantaged with her, for the finest touch to his good looks was given by this toning down, neither pallor nor dark circles detracting from them, but rather adding to them a melancholy favour of distinction. George had retained his mourning, a tribute completed down to the final details of black gloves and a polished ebony cane, which he would have been pained to name otherwise than as a walking-stick and in the aura of this sombre elegance his straight figure and drawn face were not without a tristful and appealing dignity in everything outward he was cause enough for a girl's cheek to flush her heart to beat faster and her eyes to warm with the soft light that came into lucy's now whether she would or no if his spirit had been what his looks proclaimed it she would have rejoiced to let the light glow forth which now shone in spite of her for a long time, thinking of that spirit of his, and what she felt it should be, she had a persistent sense. It must be there. But she had determined to believe this folly no longer. Nevertheless, when she met him at the Sharon's, she had been far less calm than she seemed. People speaking casually of Lucy were apt to define her as a little beauty, a definition short of the mark. She was a little beauty but an independent, masterful, self-reliant little American, of whom her father's earlier gypsyings and her own sturdiness had made a woman ever since she was fifteen. But though she was the mistress of her own ways, and no slave to any lamp save that of her own conscience, she had a weakness. She had fallen in love with George Amberson Minifer at first sight, and no matter how she disciplined herself, she had never been able to climb out. The thing had happened to her, that was all. George had looked just the way she had always wanted someone to look, the riskiest of all the moonshine ambushes wherein tricky romance snares credulous young love. But what was fatal to Lucy was that this thing having happened to her, she could not change it. No matter what she discovered in George's nature, she was unable to take away what she had given him. And though she could think differently about him, she could not feel differently about him, for she was one of those two faithful victims of glamour. When she managed to keep the picture of George away from her mind's eye, she did well enough. But when she let him become visible, she could not choose but love what she disdained. She was a little angel who had fallen in love with high-handed Lucifer, quite an experience, 
and not apt to be soon succeeded by any falling in love with a tamer party. And the unhappy truth was that George did make better men seem tame. But though she was a victim, she was a heroic one, anything but helpless. As they drew nearer, George tried to prepare himself to meet her with some remnants of aplomb. He decided that he would keep on looking straight ahead, and lift his hand toward his hat at the very last moment when it would be possible for her to see him out of the corner of her eye. Then, when she thought it over later, she would not be sure whether he had saluted her or merely rubbed his forehead. And there was the added benefit that any third person who might chance to look from a window or from a passing carriage would not think that he was receiving a snub, because he did not intend to lift his hat but, timing the gesture properly, would in fact actually rub his forehead. These were the hasty plans which occupied his thoughts until he was within about fifty feet of her, when he ceased to have either plans or thoughts. He had kept his eyes from looking full at her until then, and as he saw her, thus close at hand and coming nearer, a regret that was dumbfounding took possession of him. For the first time he had the sense of having lost something of overwhelming importance. Lucy did not keep to the right, but came straight to meet him, smiling, and with her hand offered to him. "'Why, you—' he stammered as he took it. "'Haven't you—' what he meant to say was, "'Haven't you heard?' "'Haven't I what?' she asked. And he saw that Eugene had not yet told her. "'Nothing,' he gasped. "'May I—may I turn and walk with you a little way?' "'Yes, indeed,' she said, cordially. He would not have altered what had been done. He was satisfied with all that satisfied that it was right, and that his own course was right. But he began to perceive a striking inaccuracy in some remarks he had made to his mother. Now, when he had put matters in such shape that even by the relinquishment of his ideals of life he could not have Lucy, knew that he could not have her, and knew that when Eugene told her the history of yesterday he could not have a glance or word even friendly from her, now, when he must in good truth give up all idea of Lucy, he was amazed that he could have used such words as no particular sacrifice, and believed them when he said them. She had looked never in his life so bewitchingly pretty as she did to-day, and as he walked beside her he was sure that she was the most exquisite thing in the world. "'Lucy,' he said huskily, "'I want to tell you something, something that matters.' "'I hope it's a lively something, then,' she said, and laughed. "'Papa's been so glum to-day he's scarcely spoken to me.' "'Your Uncle George Amberson came to see him an hour ago, and they shut themselves up in the library, and your uncle looked as glum as Papa. I would be glad if you'd tell me a funny story, George.' "'Well, it may seem one to you,' he said, bitterly. "'Just to begin with, when you went away, you didn't let me know, not even a word, not even a line.' Her manner persisted in being inconsequent. "'Why, no,' she said. "'I just trotted off for some visits.' "'Well, at least you might have—' "'Why, no,' she said again, briskly. "'Don't you remember, George? We'd had a grand quarrel, and didn't speak to each other all the way home from a long, long drive. So, as we couldn't play together like good children, of course it was plain that we oughtn't to play at all.' "'Play?' he cried. "'Yes. What I mean is that we'd come to the point where it was time to quit playing. Well, whatever we were playing.' "'At being lovers, you mean, don't you?' "'Something like that,' she said, lightly. For us two, playing at being lovers was just the same as playing at cross-purposes. I had all the purposes, and that gave you all the crossness. Things weren't getting along at all. It was absurd. "'Well, have it your own way,' he said. "'It needn't have been absurd.' "'No, it couldn't help but be,' she informed him cheerfully. "'The way I am and the way you are, it couldn't ever be anything else. 
So what was the use? I don't know, he sighed, and his sigh was abysmal. But what I wanted to tell you was this. When you went away, you didn't let me know and didn't care how or when I heard it, but I'm not like that with you. This time I'm going away. That's what I wanted to tell you. I'm going away tomorrow night, indefinitely. She nodded sunnily. That's nice for you. I hope you'll have ever so jolly a time, George. I don't expect to have a particularly jolly time. Well, then, she laughed, if I were you, I don't think I'd go. It seemed impossible to impress this distracting creature, to make her serious. Lucy, he said desperately, this is our last walk together. Evidently, she said, if you're going away tomorrow night. Lucy, this may be the last time I see you, ever, ever in my life. At that, she looked at him quickly, across her shoulder, but she smiled as brightly as before, and with the same cordial inconsequence. Oh, I can hardly think that, she said, and of course I'd be awfully sorry to think it. You're not moving away, are you, to live? No. And even if you were, of course, you'd be coming back to visit your relatives every now and then. I don't know when I'm coming back. Mother and I are starting tomorrow night for a trip around the world. At this she did look thoughtful. Your mother is going with you? Good heavens! he groaned. Lucy, doesn't it make any difference to you that I am going? At this her cordial smile instantly appeared again. Yes, of course, she said. I'm sure I'll miss you ever so much. Are you going to be gone long? He stared at her wanly. I told you, indefinitely, he said. We've made no plans at all for coming back. That does sound like a long trip, she exclaimed admiringly. Do you plan to be travelling all the time, or will you stay in some one place the greater part of it? I think it would be lovely to—Lucy! He halted, and she stopped with him. They had come to a corner at the edge of the business section of the city, and people were everywhere around them, brushing against them sometimes, and passing. "'I can't stand this,' George said, in a low voice. "'I'm just about ready to go in this drug store here and ask the clerk for something to keep me from dying in my tracks. It's quite a shock, you see, Lucy.' What is? To find out certainly, at last, how deeply you've cared for me. To see how much difference this makes to you. By Jove, I have mattered to you. Her cordial smile was tempered now with good nature. George! She laughed indulgently. Surely you don't want me to do pathos on a downtown corner. You wouldn't do pathos anywhere. Well, don't you think pathos is generally rather foozling? I can't stand this any longer, he said. I can't. Good-bye, Lucy. He took her hand. It's good-bye. I think it's good-bye for good, Lucy. Good-bye. I do hope you'll have the most splendid trip. She gave his hand a cordial little grip, then released it lightly. Give my love to your mother. Good-bye. He turned heavily away, and a moment later glanced back over his shoulder. She had not gone on, but stood watching him, that same casual, cordial smile on her face to the very last. And now, as he looked back, she emphasized her friendly unconcern by waving her small hand to him cheerily, though perhaps with the slightest hint of preoccupation, as if she had begun to think of the errand that brought her downtown. In his mind, George had already explained her to his own poignant dissatisfaction. Some blond pup, probably, whom she had met during that perfectly gorgeous time. And he strode savagely onward, not looking back again. But Lucy remained where she was until he was out of sight. Then she went slowly into the drug store which had struck George as a possible source of stimulant for himself. 
"'Please let me have a few drops of aromatic spirits of ammonia in a glass of water,' she said, with the utmost composure. "'Yes, ma'am,' said the impressionable clerk, who had been looking at her through the display window as she stood on the corner. But a moment later, as he turned from the shelves of glass jars against the wall, with the potion she had asked for in his hand, he uttered an exclamation. "'For gosh's sake, miss!' And, describing this adventure to his fellow boarders that evening, "'Sagged pretty near to the counter she was,' he said. "'If I hadn't been a bright, quick, ready-for-anything young fella, she'd a flummoxed plum. I was watching her out the window, talking to some young society fella, and she was all right then. She was all right when she come into the store, too. Yes, sir, the prettiest girl that ever walked in our place, and took one look at me. I reckon it must be the truth what some of you town wags say about my face.' End of chapter 27